Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. As you're taking your seats, uh, let me just tell you one of the things about my holy vocation, my job, that I don't like. And that thing that I don't like is that through the public ministry of preaching and teaching, but also through the private ministry of counseling and visiting with people, I often have to, through the conversation or through the preaching, delve into things that hurt. It's sort of like pulling the bandage off of wounds. And it hurts. But there's a purpose in doing that. What's the purpose? To apply the healing balm of the gospel where it hurts. This morning, I'm going to call you to go where it hurts. We'll call you to go there, uh, not to inflict pain as my end goal, but to apply healing balm. Uh, we're, we're going to a tough passage. We're going back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to verses 15 through 25, and then I want you to have a Bible uh, close by or your Bible app on your phone or a pew Bible. And if you use that pew Bible, just leave it on the pew. Afterwards, we'll know which ones need to be wiped off. I want you to be able to go to Psalm 51. So we're going to be at 2 Samuel chapter 12 and Psalm 51. But to be in the right frame of mind to hear these passages, let's go here. I want you to imagine with me that time in your life. It could be right now or it could have been years ago, in which you prayed the most fervently that you have ever prayed. The most intensely as you've ever prayed. Why were you praying that way? What was the reason? What was causing you to pray in that way? Maybe it was the health of a dearly loved family member. Maybe it was a loved one that was near the point of death. And you're crying out unto the Lord to heal. You're crying out to the Lord to spare. Or, or maybe it was a relationship, or it is a relationship, that's just gone sour, it's gone sideways, it's, it's terrible, and, you're, and, and you're, you're ripped apart inside and you're crying out to the Lord to, to maintain, to heal, to bring back together. Or maybe it's a relationship that you don't have. And you desire. Or maybe it's a battle with uh, a sin. A sin that you feel like you fall into again and again and again. A, a, a besetting sin that always seems to have its foot on your neck with a sneer on its face. 
I don't know what it, what it is, but there is a time in your life where you pray fervently, pour out your heart. Maybe it's right now. But whenever it was, I want you to think about the pain that, that motivated, that fueled that prayer. And if you go there with me to that hurt, you're better able to hear this text. Let us read God's holy word. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house. Nathan has been sent by God and he does God's bidding and he reveals the sin of David. He opens him up. He slides in the rhetorical sword and he's right there and he says, Thou art the man. Thou art the man and this is what's going to happen because of your sin, but, but you shall live. And then he goes home. Remember, David confessed his sin, and, and Nathan goes home. Verse 15 continues, though. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with him. And on the seventh day, get that, seven days he's doing this. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him, that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child's dead? He may do himself harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David was no dummy. David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and he washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord. Nathan had gone to his house, now David's going into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And he then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servant said to him, What is this thing you, you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food? And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her, and he lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon, derives from Shalom, peace. And the Lord loved him. And sent a message again by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, loved of the Lord, because of the Lord. Now, if you will go over to Psalm 51 with me. 
For Psalm 51 gives us the prayer, at least a portion of the prayer that David is praying as he's laid out before the Lord, as he's fasting, as he's during that time period of seven days. Here's a portion of that prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Plot out my transgressions. Did he have a lot of transgressions? Yes. Did he know them? Yes. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And pause there and think about where did David's sins begin in his inward being. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me hear joy and gladness. What? Is, he, is he praying to hear the joyous cries of a child? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And pay attention to this next verse. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Oh God, oh God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Think about it. He has, he, has, he has not done his duty to Jerusalem. And he recognized it. To cut design in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. We don't have time to unpack one of these passages, much less two, and there's so much here, but what I want us to do is I want us to have both passages in our minds as we consider some conundrums of our faith. Conundrums that we find here uh, reflected in these texts. What are conundrums? It's a fancy word, children. What are conundrums? Conundrums are, are problems. They're puzzles. They're, they're difficult problems or questions that we face that we want to find answers to. And, we, and, and by God's grace, sometimes we can find answers, at least some answers, but yet we still find ourselves not necessarily fully satisfied with the answers that we find, but we've got a measure of answer to such problems. 
We've got conundrums before us that need to be teased out. These puzzles need to be, have some, some sort of revel, uh, uh, resolution. We have them here in David's prayer. We have them here in the death of this precious boy. We have them here at the birth of Solomon. What are these conundrums? These are the ones I see. The first one is this. The conundrum of the goodness of God in the death of a child. The conundrum of the goodness of God in the death of a child. And we're faced with this conundrum right off the bat, aren't we? It's part of life, isn't it? And, and, And we can't avoid it if we look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're confronted right off the bat in verse 15. And the Lord... The writer's not bashful. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And if you glance on down to verse 18, and on the seventh day, the child died. The child died. Conundrum of the goodness of God in the death of a child. Yes, the sins of the fathers can affect the sons, the children, to third and fourth generation. It can go on and go on. Yes, we, we recognize that the sins of the fathers can affect us personally. We all know something, no doubt about that. We, we not only know it personally, we know it as a culture, do we not? The sins of our fathers still have ramifications even to this day. Yes, this is true. And yes, this was a temporal punishment of David. And it was born by his son. And yes, that's, a, that's some, something of a foreshadowing of the son of David who is to come. Yes, yes, yes. And yet, the child who dies is a little baby. Seven days old. No fault of his own. That little boy, that little baby, that little precious child did not have a rap sheet like his daddy had. He did not have a criminal record like his father who was king had, did he? It doesn't seem right to us, does it? But dear ones, as a a good and biblical and wise evangelist has put it, not only, we have more than one problem. Our our problem is not merely that as sinners we've got a, a, a rap sheet, a record of criminal wrongs, a record of sins against God and against others. It's not merely that we have a bad record, but we also have a what? A bad heart. And didn't didn't David acknowledge that in his prayer in Psalm 51? Did he not say in verse 5, Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Every human being apart from the Lord Jesus Christ is born into this world as a what? Sinner. We bear original sin. We are found in our covenant federal head, Adam and Eve. And when they fell, what happened to us? We fell. 
And human babies, no matter how cuddly, and we had a lot of them at the first service, by the way. We did, and it was just, it was just an amazing illustration. No human baby, no matter how cuddly, no matter how sweet, no matter how beautiful, is born without a sinful heart. No human baby is born into a perfect world without sin. No, every human baby is born into a sinful, broken, and fallen world. You know it, don't you? You were born into such a world. Your children have been born into such a world. Your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren will be born into such a world. And they and you will be born with original guilt, with original sin. And get this, dear ones. Sometimes God in his unfathomable wisdom, he does not stay or stop the hand of this broken, fallen world. And babies get sick and babies die. To afflict the child, as we're told in verse 15, means, dear one, that God didn't stay the hand of the fall. He didn't stop it. And let it be said gently, let it be said carefully, let it be said reverently, God didn't have to. God didn't have to stay the hand of the fall. that he stays the death angel with each of you, with each of us. Here is what? Mercy. Mercy. Divine mercy. Brothers and sisters, the child on the seventh day, the child died. This is a hard providence. This is a hard passage. But please don't miss what David knew about his son and what David knew about his God, even when his God was a God of our providence. What did he say upon the death of the child? I shall go to him. Meaning David knew his child was what? Though his child had died, his child was now alive in the presence of the Almighty. In the presence of the perfect, glorious Father. And one day, by God's grace, He would be there with Him. Yes, the child passed through the portal of death. But He passed into the presence of the perfect Father. And that precious child, seven days old, died and found himself in a far better place than in a palace in Jerusalem. He found himself in the eternal home and palace of a triune, glorious, gracious God. And guess what? David joined him. David joined him. And guess what, dear ones? David and his precious baby boy 
I don't know, in, 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 in heaven, in the presence of God, the spirit of that baby, is that spirit now mature? I don't know, but this I know. David and his boy are in the presence of Almighty God now. I like how our confession of faith puts it in chapter 10. The divines, the Westminster divines, put it wisely and they put it carefully. Hear what they said. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated, born again, and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how He pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being called, outwardly called, by the ministry of the Word. What are the divines saying? That elect children who die in infancy, or die in the womb, and those people who, those elect persons who are unable because of mental problems or issues, are unable to understand the proclamation of God's Word, guess what? They are saved by God's grace. But notice that the divines, they don't define who the elect infants and the elect persons are, do they? They don't tell us how many there are. They don't tell us, are they only the children of believers? Or they, they don't tell us. They leave that. They leave it wisely. Remember I said this is conundrum, and we don't oftentimes get all the full answers that we, we want. But he, here's where I am. Maybe it's going to be where you are. I'll happily leave the bounds of who those elect infants and those elect persons are to my heavenly, glorious, gracious Father and to the one who said, let the little children come to me and to the Spirit who blows wherever He willeth. And my contention, and I said it this morning, and I say it again, when we are with the Lord, guess what? We're going to see thousands and thousands and thousands and millions and millions and millions and millions of little babies who died in the wombs of their mothers who died in infancy. And we're going to see thousands and thousands of those who are mentally uh, incapable, incapable of, uh, of understanding the Word of God. And we will have thousands and thousands and millions and millions of brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ who were saved by Jesus through the working of the Spirit, mysteriously but truly. And I can't wait. I cannot wait. Whew. The second conundrum. I'll move quickly. I'll try. The conundrum of a sinner's vertical guilt in the face of horizontal sin. Did you notice in Psalm 51 this verse? It, it usually gets me. It's verse 4. David... After all this that's gone on in chapter 11 and 12, David prays this way against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Now we've seen, haven't we, as we've worked our way through this passage, we've seen this sordid affair. And in this sordid affair, we have a complex of sin. And David's complex of sin, David's avalanche of sin, affected so many people, didn't it? His, his sins didn't just affect him. His sins affected his servants that he pulled in to go get Bathsheba. His sins affected Bathsheba in that he took her, abusing royal prerogative and power. And his sins involved Joab and military men. And his sins most definitely involved Uriah. Right? David sinned against all these people. So why does he say... Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now one answer, and I think it's purely inadequate. (laughs) One answer is that David's fallen contemporaries wouldn't have necessarily seen what he had done as being sinful. It's just a king being a king, doing what kings do. They can do whatever they want to. But, but, But David himself, you can tell he's guilty. You can tell he's got a guilty conscience. He's trying to do what with the sin? Hide his sin, and hide his sin, not only from God, but hide his sin from whom? Other people. So how do we answer this question, this conundrum? Why does David say, against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? I think the answer is this. He means that his sins against others, his horizontal sins, were always sins against those God had created. They were crimes against those who were bearing the image of God. They were transgressions against God's established order. They were failures to render render what was due to other people based on who David was. David was king, so he should have loved, he should have cared, he should have protected these people instead of abusing them. He should have been just. Instead of unjust. His his were sins of omission. He failed to render justice. And they were direct attacks upon the image bearers of God. And the image of God. Sins of terrible commission. And all again, ultimately against whom? God. Brothers and sisters, every time we sin, when we sin against one another, we're sinning against Whom? Image bearers of God. We are sinning against God. Every advance of that avalanche of sin of David was against God. And every sin Lee commits is against God. And every sin you commit is against God. So where does David's confession and repentance begin? With God. Third conundrum. The conundrum of the place of prayer and the foreordination of God. The place of prayer and foreordination of God. To get at what I'm meaning here, you kind of have to go back to a couple of verses before verse 15. Verses 13 and 14. They, they read this way. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. 
the Lord, through the mouth of Nathan, had declared this, this punishment, this judgment, this warning. The child who is born of you shall die. Nathan declares that God has foreordained this. God has declared that this child of this immoral affair, this precious baby, will pass away. So why does David do what he fervently does? God's declared it's going to happen. And yet what does David do? He cries out. He prays. He fasts. He lays out for not just five or ten minutes, but for what? He does all this. He keeps this up for how many days? Seven days. Why? David approaches this situation. He approaches this warning of God. He approaches this pronouncement of judgment like this. Maybe the Lord is giving me this warning, but what he means is that if I confess and if I repent, he will relent. And if I don't, he won't. Right? Do you all remember the story of, of um, Jonah? Jonah is called to go pronounce judgment upon Nineveh. Doesn't he? And he does. Reluctantly, but he finally does. And he says, after four days, this is going to happen, right? It's, it's going to happen. And what, by God's grace, do the Ninevites do? They confess. They seek forgiveness. And what does God do? He relents from what he had said in his declared word. Why? Because the secret will of the Lord was to save Ninevites. And David is kind of thinking that way. Maybe God is going to use my prayers in His eternal plan, in His mysterious will, to bring about a wonderful, surprising answer, and my child, my baby, my boy will live. That's, that's, that's good theology. That's, that's bold praying. That's the way we should pray. I'll tell you a quick story about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had a, uh, this is told by several pastors and commentators, Alexander the Great had a, a court philosopher. But the court philosopher was known for blowing through money. And the court philosopher, uh, his money bag was empty. And he decided he's going to go to Alexander the Great to get some money, ask for some money, because he knew he was favored by Alexander the Great. So he goes in and he asks Alexander the Great if he could have some financial assistance. And Alexander the Great said this to him. He said, go, go to the treasurer and request whatever you want and by name. Whatever I want? Yeah, whatever you want. So he goes to the treasurer. Now, now the treasurer is there and here comes this spendthrift. He knows he's a spendthrift. He comes in and says, I want, it would be the equivalent in our day, I want thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I don't want just a little bit of money to tie me over to my next paycheck. And the, and the, and, and the treasurer is like aghast. You've got to be kidding me. 
So the treasurer goes to Alexander the Great. Did you say this? Did you say it's okay for him? You are going to give him, sire, this is a ludicrous amount of money. This is absurd. This is unreasonable. Surely you don't intend for me to write this guy a check for that amount because you know what he's going to do with it. He's going to blow it. Alexander heard him out and then responded, Let the money be instantly paid. I am delighted in this philosopher's way of thinking. He has done me a singular honor. By the largesse of his request, he shows the high idea he has conceived, both of my superior wealth and my royal generosity. Give him the money. He asked boldly, didn't he? Because he knew Alexander favored him. He knew Alexander was rich. He knew Alexander was generous. Dear ones, make big requests of God. Don't be bashful. Who knows? In his secret, mysterious will, his answer might be yes. And I'll give you even more. I'll bless you even more. Don't hold back. And yet as you and David and Job and Paul knew, God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way we desire. So let us approach these deep prayers with a heart like David. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But then when the answer comes back, not in the way we want, if that answer is not a part of his secret, mysterious will, let us be like David. Verse 20, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Lastly, the conundrum of sovereign grace for sleazy sinners. The conundrum of sovereign grace for sleazy sinners. If you go back to Psalm 51, I would encourage you to do so. And look at all those petitions, all those things, all those ways that David cried out to the Lord. And guess what God did? He answered him. He answered him. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Did God deliver him? Yes. Did God forgive him? Yes. Who got credited for Uriah's death? You know the answer. David? Jesus. 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 And then the, his faith when he said, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. And then verses 24 uh, and, and 25, what does he do? He, he has confessed his sins unto the Lord. He's repented and now he's turning to whom? Bathsheba. And what are we told he does? Does he take her? No, he goes in and he does what? Consoles her. 
And that's implying that he, he, he confesses to her and he pours out his love for her and he consoles her. And the Lord gave them a son, Shalom, Solomon. And then finally, and we didn't read it, but you can look at it later. I'll just read you one verse, verse 29 at the end of chapter 12. You know, David's sin was not merely against God. David's sin was not merely against Bathsheba. David's sin was against the Israelites. He had failed to do his kingly duty. But now notice in verse 29. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it, the Ammonites, and he took it. Success. He's now doing what kings should do in leading their people in war. And what are we seeing in all that? God's amazing, sovereign grace at work in the heart of a sleazy sinner. And child of God, if you are a child of God and you're trusting in Christ, look into the mirror. Look into the mirror. God's grace is poured out for you. And how can such unfathomable grace be at work in David's life? And how can such unfathomable grace be at work in your life? Because the greater son of David, greater than that seven-day-old baby boy, the greater son of David came and bore your sins upon the cross. And he was buried. And on the third day, he was resurrected for you. For you. For me. For David. And he extends his grace to you now. If you've never placed your faith and trust in this Jesus, today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. May we all find our refuge in You. May we all be Your children by sovereign grace. Of course, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.